turn to the little book of 2 John. 2 John, if you don't know where 2 John is, go to the book of Revelation and turn left. Uh, it's just a very small book. That's why the pastor has referred to this sermon series as Postcards from Heaven because of the brevity of the four sermons, of the four passages that we're looking at over uh, this month's time. And uh, the second book of John is actually the, the second smallest book in the Bible, right behind 3 John. It's just a little bit uh, longer than 3 John, with some 245 words. Uh, very few words, but a lot to say. You know, if I were to ask you tonight to define faithfulness, I might get a myriad of answers in, in this room tonight most of which would be based on some definition of consistency. And when we think about faithfulness, we think of someone or something that is consistent, that you can count on it, you can take it to the bank. And yet, in some ways, it might depend on what area of life uh, that we're referring to as to how one might answer the question of faithfulness. For example, if a student studies diligently day in and day out, and averages 99 out of 100 on, on each of his or her test scores for the year, most of us would say that's extremely faithful. I'll take a 99. I, I had a guy in, in, in high school that cried because he didn't get 100. And I wanted to slap that guy uh, because I, I, would, I would have cried. I would have cried tears of joy with a 99. And so a student who studies consistently averages a 99 percentile on test results would be considered a faithful student. Chick-fil-A, my favorite fast food restaurant, gets my order right 99 out of 100 times. And that, uh, and that is not a hypothetical example. They literally get it right 99 out of 100 times, and I eat there probably 100 times uh, per year, according to my wife. When they get my order correct 99% of the time, I'm thrilled with that. I'm very happy. But on the other hand, in some other areas, in some other arenas of life, we wouldn't tolerate getting it right only 99% of the time. We couldn't stand uh, having it right only 99% of the time. For example, I, start, I probably start my car a minimum of five times a day. If, if I'm like, if you're like me, at least not five times a day, five to ten times a day. That means if my battery only worked 99% of the time, I would have to replace it about every 20 days. About every 20 days. In reality, the average battery in a, in a vehicle lasts for approximately four to five years. Take an even more extreme example. Uh, let's think about commercial airline flights. Every day around the world, there are some 100,000 plus airline, commercial airline flights. Imagine, imagine if commercial airlines only took off and landed safely 99% of the time. That, that, would mean, that would mean that every morning we would turn on the news to discover that 1,000 airplanes had crashed the previous day. That would be 365,000 airplane crashes each year. I'm not sure many of us would get on a plane with 99% accuracy, 99% faithfulness. Well, what, is, what does faithfulness look like in the Christian life? Well, fortunately, fortunately for us, our salvation is not based on getting it right 99% of the time. Ultimately, the only reason any of us are saved is not because of our faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of Christ to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus was faithful 100% of the time. 
He was always completely faithful to do the will of the Father, and the Father has loved us with an everlasting love based on who He is rather than on what we do. And so salvation is not, thankfully, based on the performance of sinners, but rather on the person of of Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. God declares me as righteous not because of anything that I've done, but because of what He has done. That being said, however, once we are saved, the Lord calls us to a life of faithfulness. In in the book of 2 John, the apostle shows us the difference between what a faithful follower of Christ looks like versus those who pretended to be Christ's followers but who were in reality nothing more than frauds. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. And so in this small book of 245 words, he tells us some very important information that he gave to the original readers, and the same warning is true for us today on how to tell the difference between a faithful follower of Christ versus a faithless fraud. I'm going to read the entire book, beginning in verse 1. John writes, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Well, the establishment of the Roman Empire made Uh, travel much easier than it had ever been before. As you well know, the Romans are legendary for the roads they built, and as a result, the spread of the gospel was enhanced in the first century. Missionaries were able to travel freely, but the problem for those traveling missionaries was where where to stay once they entered a city. There were no comforts of the modern-day hotel. The the lodgings that they had were were often filthy and flea-infested, and so it was only natural that Christians who were traveling were shown great amounts of hospitality by members of the local churches. And as good and right as that was, this type of hospitality was also prone to abuse. Because there were false teachers who would come along who were often more motivated by greed than by creed, and they were looking for financial gain and a free place to stay. And so John writes to warn his readers and to help them to be able to distinguish between faithful followers of Christ and these faithless frauds. He doesn't want his readers to buy into the lies of these false prophets or help them in any way by providing lodging to them. 
These people were promoting a false gospel. Uh, It's very likely it was a form of Gnosticism, a, a cult of the time, and John did not want to participate in that one bit. I once in, in Gatlinburg, I had a gentleman that came up to a friend of mine and, and myself, uh, several of us, and told us on the streets of Gatlinburg what great things God was doing in Gatlinburg. And he sounded legit. He sounded like a, a godly Christian man. And he began to tell us some things. And he was looking for a donation. And we, without thinking, we were young and we just we, we wanted to contribute to the cause. And we gave him some money. And he gave us a little pamphlet, and he walked away. And as we sat down to eat a meal a few minutes later, we looked at that pamphlet, and it became obvious very quickly that this man was a a part of a cult. And uh, whatever it was God was doing in Gatlinburg through that guy, he did it quickly because that man left in a hurry. We never could find him. We went looking for him to get our money back because we did not want to contribute to, to, to his cult in any way. That's similar to what John was writing about. Now, John addresses his letter to, to the chosen lady and there's a lot of debate as to whether this was an actual woman who had children or whether he's referring figuratively to a, a, a local church. Uh, I tend to believe that the latter is the case but regardless of which view a person holds it, it doesn't make a lot of difference. It, it, if it was an actual lady then she was certainly part of the Christian community and so what would have been true for her, what would have been applicable to her would have been equally applicable to the local church that she was a part of. So in, in one sense, it's, it's irrelevant. But John writes this letter to help us distinguish between the genuine and the disingenuous, between the authentic and the fraudulent. And the difference between these two groups really boils down to one word, and it's the word truth. It's the word truth. You know, as as you may well know, that when we study Scripture, one of the keys to look for in a passage of Scripture is words or phrases that the author mentions multiple times, and that helps us to discern the overall message that the author is seeking to convey. John mentions truth five times in the first four verses of this book. He is very concerned that his readers understand the truth so that they will not succumb to the false teaching of those that he discusses in verses 7 and following. And and so he mentions truth five times in these first four verses. And these three things uh, are are really uh, what distinguish Christians from non-Christians concerning the truth. John tells us three things about this truth that I want you to notice tonight. He tells us, first of all, that faithful followers possess a truth that is known in their mind, that they can know in their minds. In verse 1, he tells us, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who, what? Know the truth. He tells us that truth is something that we can actually know in our mind. Now, he's not saying that we know all truth. No one uh, can possibly know all the truth there is to know, although there are plenty of people who seem to to think that they do. All you have to do is turn on Facebook. You'll you'll see just how smart everyone is. Everyone, uh, people know the truth, and, and for many of them, they think they know the entire truth. But no one knows all possible truth. It, it's important to understand what kind of truth John is, is talking about. And we can easily discern from the context of the passage that John is not talking about truth in general. He's not speaking about general truth. He's not talking about relative truth. John is referring to absolute truth. You say, well, what is the difference between relative truth and absolute truth? If I make the statement, 50 degrees is cold, that's relative truth. 
coming out of the summer, 50 degrees seems rather cold. But after a few months of winter, 50 degrees might feel like a heat wave. I'm always amazed in the spring, we've, we've had cold, brutal weather, and all of a sudden you have a 50-degree day, and my son is wanting to run around barefooted outside. Now, the sun is too cold, but it feels like a heat wave to him. You see, that's relative truth. But if, on the other hand, I make the statement, 50 degrees is always colder than 70 degrees, that's absolute truth. That is truth that does not change. It, it's always true. A couple of weeks ago, at our 100th anniversary service, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, our longest tenured member, Rosalie Bennett. Uh, been a member of Ninth and Old Baptist Church for 82 years. Uh, earlier this year, my family and I attended her 96th birthday. And Rosalie was a bookkeeper for a local attorney until she was 92. And so being someone who likes working with, with numbers, she started talking to our 13-year-old son and she asked him if he liked math in school. And I think he, I think he obliged her by saying, yeah, a little bit. And, and, and then she looked him in the eyes and she said, Jacob, you remember one thing. Two plus two equals four. And it will always equal four. Regardless of what anyone else in this world tells you, it will always equal four. When we left there that day, we asked our son if he understood that Rosalie wasn't just giving him a math lesson. As important as math may be, she was saying something much more profound, and that is that there are some things that are always right, and there are some things that are always wrong. It is absolute, and no matter what the world may say, it will not change. Only 22% of Americans today believe in absolute truth. We're spending tens of thousands of dollars to send our kids to, to, to colleges uh, where, where they're often inundated by professors who tell them that there's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. And the most amazing thing about that is the hypocrisy of their statement. Because you understand that when they argue that there's no such thing as absolute truth, they're arguing that point from a statement of fact. They are saying that it is absolutely true that there is nothing, there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's the most ludicrous statement that they could possibly make. Well, Contrary to what our postmodern culture might say, John says that there is absolute truth and that it's absolutely possible to know that truth. And he's speaking specifically about spiritual truth. And this truth is no less than the person and work of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. And because Jesus is truth, his word is truth. Again, in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 17, the Bible says, your word is truth. It doesn't say your word is true. Because if God's word is just simply true, well, there are a lot of books that are true. He says your word is truth because truth is the standard by which everything else is measured. 
Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change, and his word doesn't change. And yet these false teachers were misleading people concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. They were denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, they were denying that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And John says, do not be fooled by these deceivers. Folks, in order to be a follower of Christ, one must believe what the Bible teaches concerning his person and his work, his identity and his work. To reject what the scripture clearly teaches about Jesus is to reject Jesus himself. And and John says this truth is a truth that we can know in our minds. But he tells us a second thing. Not only is truth something that we can know in our minds, but he he tells us that faithful followers also possess a truth that that, that is experienced in our hearts. It's a truth that's experienced in our hearts. Look in verses 2 and 3. He says, For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us. It abides. This truth abides in us. It lives in us. And he tells us the result of this truth in verse 3, what it brings to our lives. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Those are three components uh, that, that we experience in our lives as a result of possessing this truth. Grace is a word which theologians have defined in many ways, but one of the simplest being one that, that most of us are familiar with, God's unmerited favor. It's God giving to us what we do not deserve. I don't deserve life, but by God's grace, he has given it to me. I don't deserve salvation, but because of God's grace, he has given it to me. I like grace. I like grace. Mercy is the flip side of grace. Grace is, is God giving us something that we don't deserve, but mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. I deserve death, but by God's mercy, he withholds it. From me, I deserve eternal punishment, but because of God's mercy, he withholds it from me. Thank God for mercy. And, and, then, he, and then he tells us, he throws in just for an uh, added benefit, peace. Because when we have grace and mercy, what naturally follows is peace. We have, according to the Bible, uh, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer enemies of God. He has called us friend. God loves us. But there's not just peace with God. There's this additional benefit of peace of God. We have the peace of God. Jesus said in John 14.27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What a blessing to have the peace of God, the peace of Christ dwelling in our hearts because in a world that seems to be going haywire, when you hear terrible things on the news, when you look at what is going on in our culture, it it seems like things are spiraling out of control and yet we can have the peace of Christ in our lives. And the order of these is important. The order of these three phrases are important because when you've experienced grace and mercy and you remind yourself of that grace that you've received, you'll have peace. Now that doesn't mean that we're never tempted to despair, does it? As humans, we struggle. There are times when we we struggle. And thank God he doesn't turn his back on us when we do. 
But as we grow in our faith and as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we can experience the peace of God, the peace of Christ, in spite of the uncertainties that this life offers. That's a truth that we experience in our hearts, in our lives. John says there's a truth that you can know in your mind. There's a truth that you can experience in your, in your heart. But finally tonight, he tells us that faithful followers possess a truth that is demonstrated in their actions. The truth is to be demonstrated in our actions. In verses 4 through 6, John reminds us that truth is more than just something you believe. It's more than just a mental assent to a certain set of theological truths. Simply believing in the resurrection does not make a person a Christian. I can believe it intellectually and yet reject him as the Lord of my life. James says the demons believe and they shudder. But it, it is a, uh, for a faithful follower, it is a requirement to believe those things. Yes, you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And yet at the same time... Uh, Believing in these things should lead to a, a, a lifestyle. It's, it's something you live. John says we're to walk in truth. Our walk in Christ is more than just a, a mental assent to a certain set of theological truths. It's our behavior. It includes our attitude. Walking in truth is a commitment to conform our lives to that truth. And notice one of the byproducts that he mentions in verse 4 of walking in truth. It's gladness. It's joy. He said, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. Great joy comes from walking in the truth, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. Notice what John says. It made him very glad to see those children walking in truth. Their obedience to the truth brought great joy into his life. Let me just remind us tonight, Christians, that our obedience to the Lord is not only important for us personally. It's important for those around us. It's important to your spouse and your children if you're married. It's important to your friends and your co-workers. It's in, believe it or not, it's important to your pastors. It's important to your pastors to see you walk in. It brings great joy. It's not just joy in your life, though I'm convinced that it will bring joy in your own life, but it will bring joy to those around you. And notice that this walking in truth is closely connected to love. Because just as the word truth is used five times, the word love is used four times. Look, look in verses 5 and 6. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you've heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. He uses that word love four times. In fact, in verse 3, John closes out the greeting with the phrase, in truth and love. See, truth and love go together. Genuine love is truthful and biblical truth is always loving. Genuine love is truthful and biblical truth is always loving. It's impossible to faithfully live out the truth without it being demonstrated in love. And today, I find that in our culture, we, we battle, even in the church, two extremes. There, there's the, there, there are the liberals who, who are only concerned about love, and they have no problem laying aside the truth, it's just so we can all sing kumbaya and get along. 
They're more than willing to lay aside the essentials of the gospel because they value unity at all costs. But that's not genuine love. That's sentimentality. It's not genuine love to to not warn someone of the danger of hell for rejecting Christ just because we don't want to ruffle feathers. That's why John was so adamant about not helping out these impostors. That would not have been genuine love. On the other hand, there are those who are saved and mad about it. They're saved and angry about it, and they're more than happy to cast love to the curb for issues that are not essential to the gospel. They have no bearing on the gospel. They're not primary issues. They're secondary, tertiary issues at at best, and yet they divide over these theological issues that that are really not um, worth dividing over, but it's worth it to them because for these people, every mountain is a mountain worth dying on. And even when they truly need to speak the truth, they do it in a harsh and an unloving and an uncaring way. And they often wear their rudeness as a badge of honor. Well, I'm just, I'm just using my spiritual gift of prophecy. No, you're being a jerk. Don't blame, don't blame your rudeness on, on God. That's not a spiritual gift of prophecy. John reminds us that truth and love cannot be separated. He says the truth will be exhibited in love in two ways. In verse 5, he tells us that it will be demonstrated by love for others. By love for others. He says, I do not want to give you anything new to do. I want you to follow the command that you've been given from the beginning. He's referring here to the beginning of the Christian faith as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this, all will know, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it wasn't new in the sense that they'd never heard of the importance of loving others. Even in the Old Testament, the Jews uh, living in the Old Testament era were told to love their neighbors. But when Jesus came, he personified love. He raised it to a higher plane. It's not by accident that this commandment was given by Jesus on the very night of his betrayal. It's not coincidental that he spoke these words shortly after he washed the feet of his disciples, including the one that he knew would betray him just a short time later. This kind of love for others requires a willful choice on our part. A willful choice to consistently love in this manner. When John says we're to love one another, he uses a word for love which is, which is present tense. That simply means that he's saying that our love is to be a constant love. And I don't know about you, but I don't constantly feel like loving people. That requires a willful choice on my part. This type of love requires a willful action because we don't always feel like showing love. We don't always feel like going out of the way to show others our love for them, whether it's our spouses or our children or our fellow church members. And yet John says, a faithful follower of Christ demonstrates demonstrates truth in their action by their obedience to the commands. And one is to love others, but it's not only demonstrated by love for others, it's demonstrated by love for God that results in obedience to his commands. Verse 6 Verse 6, he says that this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. John, for John, love was not some abstract concept. So he gave us a specific way to identify someone who truly loves. 
The one who truly loves is the one who keeps God's commands. You see, John understood that, that lip service is not the ultimate demonstration of one's love for the Lord. John echoed the words of Jesus who said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, this was in contrast to these false teachers who, who believed that one need not be concerned about external behavior or the things of the flesh. And you say, well, Pastor, is it possible to live a legalistic lifestyle that focuses on outward obedience but yet fail to have a passion or a deep love for Christ or for God the Father? It absolutely is. Uh, that's the mark of an individual who's counting on God's acceptance through human effort. But on the other hand, it's impossible to truly love God and not be concerned about obedience. Someone who believes that, that because of God's grace... We should not be concerned about living a lifestyle of obedience and personal holiness, that we can do whatever we want because we're covered by grace. That person is probably not saved. He's probably not saved. So we demonstrate our love for Jesus by obeying his commandments, not to earn his love, but because he's already loved us. Not in order to earn salvation, but because he's already granted salvation. We demonstrate our love for Jesus by obeying his commandments, by walking in truth. In other words, by recognizing him as the Lord of our lives. That, that is the truth that, that, that we demonstrate in our actions. The city of, of Pompeii was destroyed in AD 79. In fact, during John's lifetime, when it was destroyed by... Mount Vesuvius erupting, burying many people in the ruins. And, and it's been interesting to read of some of the excavations that they've discovered. Um, they found people in cellars as if they'd gone there for safety. They found other people in upper rooms of buildings, probably for the same reason. But one of the interesting discoveries was of a Roman sentinel who was found standing at the city gate where he'd been placed by the captain with his hand still grasping his weapon while the earth shook beneath him and the sky rained down ashes and cinders on top of him he stood there until he was completely covered he stood his post and after a thousand years his faithfulness was revealed that's how we are to be as Christians concerning the truth. We're to stand firm in the truth, strong and resolute because we have a passion for knowing the truth in our minds, for experiencing the truth in our hearts, and living the truth in our actions. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we prepare to do that, let me remind you that this passage is very relevant for who should participate. The Lord's Supper is for those who know the truth. They know who Jesus is. They've experienced the grace of God in their lives by turning from their sins and placing their faith in Christ and who are seeking to demonstrate the truth through a lifestyle of obedience. Does it require perfection on our part? I certainly hope not. I certainly hope not. But if you're a baptized believer and you're seeking to walk in the truth... We invite you to participate with us tonight. Those are the, those are the things that, that really matter as to who can partake of the Lord's Supper. Have you known the truth? Have you been changed by the truth? And are you demonstrating the truth?
I'm going to ask our Vice Chairman of Deacons, Scott Moyes, to come and join me at the front. I'll ask, us, uh, ask our deacons to come forward at this time, and we'll have prayer, and we'll distribute the bread. Would you join me for prayer? Father, thank you that your word is truth. And thank you that Jesus is the truth, and there is salvation in none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that as we celebrate around this table tonight, that you're reminded of the ultimate sacrifice that he made on our behalf when he was suspended between heaven and earth as a substitute for our sins. And he took upon himself the wrath of God that we so rightly deserve. God, may we reflect on your goodness tonight as we celebrate around the table. In Jesus' name. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you take an eat? The hymn writer wrote, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So we can say with him, it is well with my soul. Would you take and drink?